We're going to read 2 Samuel chapter 12 together, just the first part, uh, and then we'll jump in. So it should be on the screen. And starting at verse 1, I think I have it here. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, it drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hands of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Verse 13, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. The word of the Lord. Now, a rumor went around this morning that tonight I was going to get a little R-rated. Um, just to set the record straight, what I said was that I was going to get political, uh, which I am. And I, I did say that I had to do the G-rated version of this story this morning because there were kids in the room, school holidays, and we're looking at David and Bathsheba, and I'm sure most of you know the story of David and Bathsheba. I had to treat it carefully. Actually, what we're doing tonight is looking at the aftermath of that story, which is what we just read in uh, 2 Samuel 12. Let's just quickly remind ourselves of the context, however, though I'm sure most of you know it very well. In 2 Samuel 11, David commits adultery with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, while Uriah was away fighting in battle for one of David's wars. Actually, given that David was the king and Bathsheba could hardly have refused him, it's very unlikely to have been consensual. And this is what I didn't say this morning. It wasn't adultery, it was rape. It was a gross crime. And most commentators agree on that point now. This was not something Bathsheba probably agreed to. Then Bathsheba falls pregnant. So in order to cover up what he's done, David recalls Uriah from the war on false pretenses in the hope that Uriah will sleep with his wife. But Uriah won't do it because he's ashamed that he's away from the battle and he's left his fellow soldiers to fight the war in his absence. So he won't sleep with his wife. So then David believes he has no choice now but to kill him is to kill him. So David writes a letter to Joab, who is the commander of the army, and he said, and it's on the screen, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. 
So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the, the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out to fight against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Now, Uriah the Hittite wasn't just some random guy. This was one of David's mighty men who'd been with David for decades, who joined David while he was on the run from Saul in the desert. One of David's closest friends, to whom David probably owed his life. Yet David, who, as we just read, has everything a person could desire in life, and if he'd wanted more, God would have given him more, still assaults Uriah's wife and then murders Uriah and a number of other men in the process because he has to make it look like this wasn't an accident. Sorry, that it was an accident, pardon me. Uh, then he lies to cover, cover it up, and that's nearly half the Ten Commandments in one terrible and sordid chain of events. This is from the man who wrote Psalm 40, verse 8. I delight to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. The man who wrote that, and I'm sure he meant it when he wrote it. Remember last week we were looking at the best moment in David's life. Well, tonight we're looking at the very worst moment in David's life. And we could point to countless other Psalms that express this same desire, this heart after God that David is renowned for, um, who profoundly trusted in God when he defeated Goliath, who showed restraint when he refused to kill Saul, right? Uh, who humiliated himself in front of all of Israel when they brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem in order that God might get the glory rather than him. Um, and who honored his covenant with Jonathan and shown kindness to Mephibosheth, the man who did all those incredible, godly, spiritual things, the man whom God chose to be king of Israel because he was a man after God's own heart, also did this. This great man, godly leader, also did this terrible, heinous, and disgusting thing. What does this tell us? I think what it tells us is something fundamentally true about human beings. And it tells us something essential about the biblical narrative. There's a whole bunch of ways to approach this story, but what I wanna to do tonight is tell you why the biblical doctrines of sin and divine judgment, which is really what this story is about, are two of the most precious biblical doctrines that we have. And remembering them and believing them, contrary to popular opinion, is not being negative or pessimistic but it actually leads to peace and to justice and to human flourishing while denying them, denying the reality of sin and denying the reality of divine judgment actually leads us to injustice, to inequality, and in many cases, tyranny. So what I'm gonna to do tonight is try to unpack some of the political dimensions of this story. This is gonna be a little bit of a different sermon to perhaps what we're used to, um, but I'm gonna try and explain why this story is so important historically and so important for our understanding of what good government looks like. Um, so that, according to Professor Christopher Watkin, who's based at Monash University, uh, in his book, Biblical Critical Theory, he writes that emphasizing universal sin and judgment is actually one of the greatest resources we have as Christians for cultural renewal. That might surprise you. Um, but for, before I get to that, let's just quickly examine what's happening here in 2 Samuel 12. David has committed a gross sin, which he thinks he's gotten away with, um, but he's eventually confronted by the prophet Nathan, who's been sent by God. Now, um, Nathan doesn't just barge in and accuse David of gross sin, right? He's much more shrewd than that. 
he realizes that even as a prophet, if he just barged into the king's audience room and accused the king of this great sin, Nathan would have probably lost his life. David would have denied it. But Nathan is very shrewd. And what he does is he tells a story that's clearly designed to entrap David with David's own sense of justice, with David's own sense of what is right and wrong, so that David cannot escape his guilty conscience but must deal with what he's done before God. Okay, so Nathan is being very clever. And David's overreaction here to the injustice in the story, to Nathan's story about this rich man who takes a poor man's sheep, I think actually reveals the fact that David knows he's guilty and he's been trying to run from it. Have you ever noticed that when someone's guilty about something and you put your finger on that thing, there's usually an overreaction? I didn't do that. And in this story, what we have is Nathan telling a story that provokes David's sense of justice. And how does David respond? He says, that man must die. That man must die, which is extreme. Not even the law of Moses calls for such an extreme punishment to the crime that's been committed in the story. In fact, the second part of David's uh, comment that he should be repaid fourfold is actually what the law of Moses says, not that the man should be executed. But it does say that someone should be executed for David's crime. David's been provoked. And when Nathan points at David and says, you are that man, David's cut to the heart and he can no longer hide from his guilty conscience. We go on to read that David repents and he writes the beautiful confessional prayer of Psalm 51. If you've not read that, we're gonna read that tonight at the end of the message. Really one of the best examples of repentance that we have in the Bible. Um, so although the Lord, here's the key thing, although the Lord forgives David, David is still punished for his actions. Um, in fact, David's leadership never really recovers from this. He drifts into weakness and into inaction. He loses confidence. Um, and ultimately, great tragedy befalls his family because of David's own fault and eventually the whole nation. Like, there's a civil war, and it all, it all stems from this moment. And we're going to look at some of that over the next couple of weeks. So God forgives David, yes, but God does not brush it under the carpet and just say, you know what, you did's fine. You said, sorry, great. That's great, David, all forgiven, no problem. No, no one escapes the justice and judgment of God in the end, no one. As Johnny Cash said, any Johnny Cash fans in the house? You can run on one, there's one guy. Thank Pepe, thanks for the show of support there, brother. Um, Johnny Cash said you can run on for a long time, but sooner or later, God's gonna cut you down. Now this all, again, this might all seem very negative and very sad and very pessimistic. Let me tell you why it's the opposite of that. And this is what I didn't say this morning, why this story is so important, not only individually, but culturally as well. It teaches us the true condition of human beings. Tim Keller says this, this story, it's on the screen, along with the whole of the scriptures, teaches that the seeds of the most terrible possible atrocities, the capability of the worst possible deeds, Live in every human heart, even the best people, even people who are converted by God, no matter who you are, even the best people who've ever lived are capable of this and have often done great evil alongside great good. The seeds of those things, of those deeds, are right now in your heart. You could be David. That's the teaching of this story, and it's through the whole of the Scriptures. Can you look at this incident and say, well, I, would, I could never do that. I would never do that. The minute you say that, you've taken one enormous step toward actually doing it because the worst thing that you could possibly think is I'm incapable of doing that. That makes you more capable. And here's why. Look at your life, friends. Look at your life tonight. 
Do you see any self-pity? Do you see any resentment? Do you see any envy or jealousy or hurt or pride or anger or self-centeredness? Like little seeds, I'm sure you know that, they, that those can become, if they fall into the right soil and get watered properly, something disastrous. Are you tolerating them? These little things, like they start out as small little things, just an emotion, anger, frustration, envy, whatever. No big deal. I could still never do anything like David. But because we don't believe that we're really capable, then we ignore these seeds and we water them unknowingly and they grow. No one sets out to do evil things until they do. Are you with me? Theologian John Owen said that uh, from the 17th century, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Or as God said to Cain in Genesis 4, Cain, sin is crouching at your door and it wants to rule over you, but you must master it. So our society doesn't believe this stuff anymore. Not really. Like, look at cancel culture, the way we deplatform people. Like, it seems to me now that if you take one misstep, even if you're an otherwise good person, even if you've contributed much to society, if you take one misstep, you say one wrong thing, and you're shouted down, hounded out, and bullied into silence. There's a very strange, ultra-religious judgmentalism that has crept into our cultural discourse. The shouty wall, some people call it. So unless you hold exactly the right beliefs and perspectives on all the social and cultural and sexual issues of the day, it's not just that you're respectfully disagreed with now. No, no, you are considered dangerous and toxic and unworthy to be seen or heard. You must disappear. Our culture has become strangely, incredibly black and white, so us and them. But here's the thing, a Christian cannot take that view. Why? Because we don't believe that anyone can meet that standard and we must not divide the world into us and them, the good people and the evil people for one simple reason. All of us are evil, every single one of us. That's the Christian perspective. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who became a Christian after spending years as a political prisoner in a Russian gulag, wrote this, that the line between good and evil runs not through states, not between classes, not even between political parties, but right through every human heart. That's the Christian view. Or as Paul puts it in Romans 3.23, I have this on the screen. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then he quotes Psalm 14, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now, that's not to say we aren't capable of good things, of doing good. We are because we're made in God's image, but that doesn't let us off the hook. We are also sinners to the core. And acknowledging this is so important and so healthy. It's not, it's not a depressing thought. I mean, it kind of is, but it's healthy for you to admit this because... Um, acknowledging this not only helps us understand the gospel, but is also essential for the flourishing of a good and just society. So it's on the slide. Professor Watkin, who I mentioned earlier, says this, the recognition of the presence of sin and the prospect of judgment, in fact, strengthens and humanizes a society, promoting democracy, equality, human dignity, hope, and care for the environment. Making more of sin, not less, is good for society. 
It's good for democracy, good for equality, good for resisting tyranny and imperialism, and good for finding meaning in life. Obviously, sin itself is not good. We would, it's safe to say, be better off without it, but an approach to society that does not shy away from the robust biblical doctrines of sin and judgment has much more of a fresh, truthful, and positive vision to offer the world. Now, the fact that that sounds crazy to our ears shows how far we have moved from a biblical understanding of the world. Watkin goes on to ask this. Imagine you were to walk down the street of any progressive Western city and ask a handful of people, what is sin? You'll likely hear two main answers. Sin is either an indulgent, an innocent indulgence, or it's a puritanical prejudice. A sneaky chocolate when you know you shouldn't, kind of, but not in a serious way, or an intolerant way of imposing one narrow idea of right and wrong on other people. As for judgment, it's become a byword for bigotry. Our culture attacks sin and judgment as hate speech, leaving Christians befuddled, embarrassed, or even in denial about these foundational biblical truths. These doctrines are not just misguided, we're told, they're downright dangerous and even evil. So we Christians face a dilemma when it comes to engaging with the world. A serious dilemma. We either ignore the biblical stuff about sin and judgment and order not to offend and be relevant, right? And then really what we've reduced the gospel to is a statement of nice sayings. And the best we can really offer the world is just please be nice to each other because that's what Jesus was like. Um, or we can go full on fire and brimstone and denounce and condemn the world and separate ourselves off from the world. And then we've got nothing positive to offer the world either. Neither of those options is right, just in case we were confused about that. So let's be clear, sin is bad. We all agree on that. But recovering the universality of sin is good. Why? Because it subverts all social hierarchies. What do I mean by that? It totally rejects the idea that some individuals or some classes of people or some ethnicities are of inherently superior worth over others. To believe that everyone is a sinner is also to believe that everyone is equal because we are all equally in need of God's grace. You with me? The doctrine of sin is therefore a powerful social glue and also a force of social subversion, insisting that if we strip away, away riches, intelligence, family upbringing, good fortune, the circumstances of your birth, all human beings stand equal before God. You see, in this story, the prophet Nathan can appear, this is why this story is so important. And if we, if we forget the message of this story, we are in peril. In this story, the prophet Nathan can stand before the king of Israel and speak truth to power. And it's in our Bible as a good thing, as a necessary thing, that the king himself, just because his king doesn't get him off the hook from the justice of God, that everyone is held accountable in the same way. And the king has to face his own evil in the same way we all do, that he is no better than anyone else. He too is a sinner. Yes, he's in an important position in society, but that doesn't make him better than or less than anyone else. And the fact we have this story is so precious. Thank God that in our scriptures, we have stories of kings being held to account for their bad behavior. This is why the Bible is not hate speech, it's precious. We lose this emphasis at our peril. Cultures and leaders that reject the idea that there is 
a God to whom they'll one day have to give an account, nearly always slide into tyranny and injustice. I mean, just think about ancient cultures where the gods were actually terrible and the, and the kings were seen to be gods themselves. They could do whatever they wanted to anyone and they could get away with it until the biblical narrative enters the scene. And in, in Babylon, uh, Daniel and his friends are confronting the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, with the word of God. And he can't get away with his bad behavior. He is being held to account for his injustice. This is in the Bible. And so we just need also to look at the first half of the 20th century, and sadly, even into this latter, well, 21st century now, the first half of the 21st century, to see how true that is, how quickly Nazi Germany slid into tyranny when it rejected the word of God, how Stalinist Russia, when it became an officially atheist state, became one of the most unjust and violent cultures this world has ever seen. G.K. Chesterton put it like this on the screen, the orig while original sin is an obviously unattractive idea, it is only with original sin that we can once pity the beggar and distrust the king. And if we're all sinners, then no one can claim to be better than or superior than anyone else, which is what Jesus means when he says, judge not, yet let ye be judged. Use the old King James Version, which is much nicer than the uh, modern English translations. Judge not, lest ye be judged. He's not saying you can't call out evil when you see it. You can't say that's wrong, that's bad. You shouldn't do that. He's not saying you can't say those things. What he's saying is you must never say those things from a posture of superiority, that you think you're better than someone else just because you're calling out their bad behavior. No, you can call out their bad behavior with humility, with love, and you're not judging. You're naming something that needs to be named, just like Nathan is doing before David. He doesn't barge in and just demand that David repent. No, he gets David to acknowledge it himself by telling a story that's filled with wisdom and humility. Okay, model your, if you're gonna confront someone, model your methods on Nathan, the prophet. And if you don't have a Nathan in your life, for God's sake, get one. People that you know will call out the bad behavior in your life and you'll listen to them. You need to have a Nathan. And maybe you will need to be a Nathan to someone else. Do it with love and humility. Pray a lot before you confront. Are you with me? C.S. Lewis said, I'm a Democrat. No, he doesn't mean a US Democrat, just so we're clear. He means I believe in democracy because I believe in the fall of man. Apologies for the, uh, the gendered language here. I think most people are Democrats for the opposite reason. A great deal of democratic enthusiasm descends from the ideas of people like Rousseau who believed in democracy because they thought mankind so wise and good that everyone deserved a share in government. We saw how that went down with the French Revolution. The danger of defending democracy on those grounds is that they're simply not true. The real reason for democracy is just the reverse. Mankind is so fallen that no man can be trusted with unchecked power over his fellows. Aristotle said that some people were only fit to be slaves. I don't contradict him, but I reject slavery because I see no men fit to be masters. Of all things, lots of quotes tonight, next slide. Of all things, Christianity isn't supposed to be about gathering up the good people, the shiny, happy, squeaky, clean people, and excluding the bad people, frightening, alien, repulsive, for the very simple reason that there aren't any good people. Writing from prison, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, 
when he was arrested by the Nazi regime for resisting uh, Hitler's war, wrote this, and he ultimately died uh, for his resistance. He wrote this, nothing that we despise in the other person is entirely absent from ourselves. That is why we cannot judge. Well, Psalm 14 again, there is no one who does good, not even one. Surely this is one of the greatest themes in the Bible that we have. Like, just look at our heroes, okay? It's a rogues gallery. Abraham's a coward and betrays his wife. Moses is a murderer and disobeys God. David is an adulterer and a liar. Jonah runs from and resents God and he's racist. Peter is impulsive and violent. Paul kills Christians for, living, uh, for a living and calls himself the greatest of sinners. What other religion on earth is so determined to point out the serious character flaws and failures of its leaders? This is so pronounced in the Bible and so clear and so rare outside of it that we may call this a very distinctive biblical idea. Does this excuse sin in any way? Absolutely not. What about the weak, the poor, the vulnerable? Surely some people are more the victims of sin, more sinned against than those sinning. Does this not just enable the perpetrators? What I mean by that is by just saying, hey, we're all sinners, we can't do anything other than sin, none of us are good, does that then just excuse bad behavior? Like, okay, people are gonna say, well, I'm treating this person unjustly or unfairly because like, that's just the way it is. No, it doesn't. For the same Bible that shouts loud and clear that there's no one righteous also raises its voice loud and clear in the face of injustice and oppression and tyranny and unjust uses of human power. It says this, Psalm 103, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. This is God's concern. So you can't just say, oh well, sin excuses our bad behavior and at the same time say, I believe in a God who is just. So if you even look at our reading today, Nathan's story, clearly God's heart for the vulnerable comes through here for those sinned against. God's not just upset at what David did in terms of because he did the wrong thing. God is upset because he hurt a bunch of people. God is upset because he took something from someone powerless. God is upset because he murdered a man and destroyed his family. God cares about the people who are broken, who are hurting, and who are oppressed. Yet the imbalance of power in this story is not fundamentally what's wrong with the world. Contrary to Karl Marx, we're not just gonna fix the world by redistributing power and the means of production. In our vision of the world, there is a law, a standard of righteousness that applies to all people equally. That's why we can say we're all sinners, both the kings and the beggars. And so, friends, it's this doctrine of universal sin, not universal goodness, that's in fact at the heart of our notion of universal justice and our concept of universal human rights. Because there is a law given by a lawgiver. Take that away, reject the God to whom we must one day give an account and we will watch human rights disappear and we will watch human tyranny reemerge. We've seen it so many times throughout history. That's why we have to hold on to these things. They're not oppressive. They actually lead to peace, to human flourishing, and to cultures in which we would all want to actually live in. 
And the reason is because we worship a God who is at once both perfectly just and perfectly merciful. And the two characteristics of God's nature are never in competition. It's not like sometimes he's just and then sometimes he's merciful. Or that sometimes his mercy gets in the way of his justice. Right? No. God is always perfectly just and always perfectly merciful. Uh, Of course, the great problem presented to us in the Scriptures is that because we're all sinners, because no one's good enough, because no one is righteous enough to meet God's standard, then we are all under judgment. But because God is merciful, he has continually and persistently been at work to give his grace to people who don't deserve it, who in many cases don't even seek it, and even don't appreciate it when they get it. The point of the Bible is that the best people who've ever lived have not and will not and cannot overcome their own sin or flaws or self-centeredness. So God himself came among us to make the way possible for us to be forgiven and to be freed from the power of sin and the curse of the law. Here's how Paul explains it in Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God has been made known. That is the justice of God has been made known through the law and the prophets, right? Understand that. The old covenant, the law and the prophets, the justice and judgment of God. This righteousness is given not by our works, but by what? By faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. No one can judge. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Now, this last bit is so crucial. He did this to demonstrate his justice and his mercy so as to be both just and the one who justifies the one who shows mercy for those who have faith in Jesus. In God's justice, someone needs to pay the penalty for our sin to make amends. In God's mercy, and this just blows my mind every time I think this, in God's mercy, he takes that penalty on himself in Jesus. He pays what no human could pay. Eugene Peterson once said, there's a remarkable resonance between this story of David standing before Nathan and the moment when Jesus stands before Pilate. Nathan says of David, you are the man. But Pilate says of Jesus, behold the man. And he's right, Eugene is right. Two courtrooms, the courtroom of David and the courtroom of Pontius Pilate, In both courtrooms, things are back to front because in 2 Samuel 12, the man who's on the judgment seat, the king's throne, should be the one in the dock, the accused. But in Pilate's courtroom, the man who's in the dock, the man who's accused and condemned, is the one who should be in the judgment seat. On the cross, Jesus, the king of kings, the true David, the only sinless human who has ever lived, was condemned and forsaken and died for the sins of the first David, for your sins, for my sins, for the sins of the whole world, so that we could all be reconciled to God. 
so that we Davids, when we repent, can receive forgiveness and escape judgment. Friends, Jesus stood in the dock where we deserve to be and he died so that we might live. And with that incredible thought and the fact that it has given birth to the kind of culture that we enjoy where we do have a healthy suspicion of our rulers, let's not lose this emphasis on sin and judgment because we're slightly embarrassed by it. Because if we do, we will transform our societies into places where no one would want to live. So we have a responsibility as the church, even if we're rejected, to be salt and light. What does salt do? It preserves. What does light do? It shines in the darkness. That's our calling as not just disciples of Jesus for our own personal reasons, but because we're called to partner with Jesus in the renewing of creation and the preserving of what is good in creation too. And ironically, the way to do that is by recognizing that you are a sinner in need of grace, and so is everybody else. And with that thought in mind, we're going to finish tonight with Psalm 51, David's beautiful confessional prayer, which is on the screen. So what I'm going to ask you guys to do is I'll pray it out loud, I'll read it out loud, but I'd love for you to make these words your own. So as I read the passage, pray these words in your heart as well. Before we pray, I want you just to take a moment, and if there's been anything that's come up for you tonight, or if you're carrying a weight of guilt, or if there's something that you need to deal with with God, just take a moment to do that right now. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence. 
or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You did not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart, you, God, will not despise. Lord, I thank you that we are able, as Hebrews 4 tells us, to come boldly into your throne room, like Nathan did before David, but not to accuse, but to bow down in humility. To be reminded that In Christ Jesus, we are accepted and beloved. And that because of Christ's blood, we have been cleansed of all our sin. That means, Lord, that we have been forgiven, justified, set free. Yes, we still sin, we still screw up, we still make mistakes. So we need to come before you each morning and be renewed in our understanding of the gospel of the forgiveness that is ours in Christ. But I thank you, Lord, as John, 1 John 4 tells us, that when we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, forgives us our sins and cleanses us of all unrighteousness. So friends, if you prayed that prayer tonight from your heart, It is my great joy to tell you tonight that in Christ Jesus, your sins are forgiven. In Jesus' name, amen.